Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. Have you guys been enjoying Thessalonians? Well, today we're going to continue our journey through this great letter. So uh, if you don't have the text in front of you, I encourage you to go ahead and open up to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to be working our way through this great text today. Well, parents who love their kids will discipline them. Amen? Parents who love their children will discipline them. It, it's good for a parent to discipline uh, their child. And, and as a parent, we know that to be true. And, and parents who refuse to discipline their children, we know that is unloving. As a matter of fact, we want children to be disciplined because we know that it is good for them. As a matter of fact, we even want other kids that aren't ours to be disciplined. Amen? So you, you have seen uh, the four-year-old hooligan uh, in Walmart, not yours, not your four, it's, it's some other kid, right, laying in the middle of aisle four, he's screaming, you know, snot's coming out of his nose, and all, um, all of your being deep within your soul, you're screaming, someone discipline this child, you, you want that to happen. You, you might even go up to the parent and ask them if they have left their belt at home, right? You, you, you wouldn't ask them that. I mean, some, maybe someone. Uh, but you want them to be disciplined. You want that child to be disciplined in that moment because you know that it is good for them. You know that that discipline will help train them not to exhibit behaviors that are bad for them and bad for other people. You know that if they're not disciplined, if something doesn't happen in that moment to change that behavior, then they will discover or, or, or think for themselves that this behavior is acceptable and it will continue and it will end up bad for that child. And so your heart's desire is to see that child disciplined in that moment. Now, we know that discipline is good for children, but the question I want to ask you this morning is, what about you? Discipline is good for children. We know that it changes bad behaviors, behaviors that are bad for them, behaviors that are bad for other people. And so we say, yes, discipline children. But what about you? Do you need to be disciplined? Now, I'm not talking about three lashes with a belt. I'm not talking about a 20-minute timeout. I'm not talking about taking away your Netflix or not allowing you to drive your car this weekend. I'm talking about the discipline of your soul. Do you need to be disciplined? Are there areas in your life that are undisciplined that need to be disciplined? You see, the root word of discipline is disciple. And, and we are disciples, are we not? If, if, if you're a Christian here in the room, then, then you must answer, yes, I am a disciple. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so where there is no discipline, then you are not a disciple. So the truth is, all of us need to be disciplined. And just as a loving parent will discipline their child, listen, a loving church will discipline its members. Let me say that again. Just as a parent will discipline their child, a loving church will discipline its members. Okay, so if you came here this morning ready to be pumped up, excited, I got a sermon on church discipline for you today. 
Is that exciting? Amen, right? We're, we're excited to hear about that. So that is what we're going to be looking at in our text today. What do I mean church discipline? Well, when we're talking about church discipline, and during the Protestant Reformation, the, the Reformers believed that this doctrine was so important that if a church did not exhibit or practice church discipline, then they were not a church at all. And so this is a very important doctrine known as church discipline. So what do we mean by church discipline? Here we go, definitions. Are you excited? Is it too early in the sermon for definitions? No, okay, here we go. Formative discipline. Here we go, formative church discipline. Let's just get everybody on the same page this morning. Formative church discipline is where the church seeks to shape the member to be more like Christ through instruction. Okay, so formative church discipline. There are two types of church discipline. You have formative church discipline and corrective. Formative church discipline is where the church itself, the church body, seeks to shape the life of the members to be more like Christ through instruction. Okay, so how do we do that? Well, um, we're doing it right now. We do that on Sunday morning. So Sunday morning service is a part of church discipline. So, so when you think discipline, don't always think just punitive or punishment. There, there is a formative church discipline, which we exhibit on Sunday mornings as we teach God's word, as we worship together. That is all of a part of formative church discipline. In addition, community groups. As you go to your community group, as you're sitting in a living room with other people, sharing God's word, hearing their stories, praying for one another, that is a part of shaping your life to be more like Christ. So Sunday morning gatherings, community groups, your DNA group, that is where you are connecting with another brother in Christ. If you're a dude or if you're a lady, you're connecting with another sister in Christ. You guys are praying for one another, confessing sin, repenting. That's a part of formative church discipline. In addition, Sunday night studies, as we gather together to do the men's study or the women's study or parenting class or discipleship 101 class, whatever it is we're doing, all four of those things that we do here at this church are a part of formative church discipline, Sunday morning gatherings, community groups, DNA groups, and Sunday night studies, okay? That's the formative part of the church discipline, which we do our best to walk out here. In addition, there is corrective church discipline. Corrective church discipline is when the church seeks to shape the member to be more like Christ through correcting sin, meaning Formative church discipline is where we encourage godly behavior. Corrective church discipline is where we discourage ungodly behavior, meaning we confront that person who is walking in regular, unrepentant, habitual sin. We explain to them that that sin is destructive, corrosive, and hurtful to them and hurtful to others, and that they need to stop. Okay? That is corrective church discipline. Here, is how generally um, that works. When, when a church member, and that's what we're talking about here, we're talking about what happens to our members, membership. Those of you who are interested in signing up for church membership, you need to know this is what we do here at this church. This is for church members. So when we know that a member is walking in habitual, unrepentant sin, okay, let's talk about that, Habitual, meaning it's happening again and again and again. They're continuing to do something, act in a certain way that is contrary to God's word. It is habitual and it is unrepentant, meaning they don't care that they're doing it. They just keep doing this sin. They might feel a worldly sorrow about it, but they're not truly repentant. So if a church member is walking in habitual, unrepentant sin, then they are confronted by another member. 
meaning that other member in the church sees this in their life, recognizes this, knows that it's a problem, knows that it's against God's word, and in love, okay, in love, they go to that other church member and say, I love you. I see this pattern or this thing that you're doing it is against God's word. Therefore, it is hurtful to you. It's destructive to you and in your, in your life and, and it's destructive to other people. So please stop. Don't, don't do this anymore. Maybe it's somebody who's pursuing an inappropriate relationship. Maybe it's somebody who, who drinks too much. Maybe it's somebody who is gossiping. I, I don't, but, but whatever that sin is, we, we encourage other church members to confront that church member and say, out of love for you because God's plan and God's design for your life is what is best for you. You're walking in a way that's contrary to that. So please stop. Please don't do that. This is hurtful to you and to others. So please repent. That is the beginning steps of church discipline. Now, if that person continues, then the next step of church discipline is for two or more people than to go to that church member and do the same thing. We love you. This is so hurtful to you. This is hurtful to other people. We don't want to see you do this. God's plan for your life is, is where you're going to find your meaning, your hope, your joy. So walk this way, not this way. Please stop. And, and I've brought these people here and, and, and they're here as a witness to, to, to just say with me that we love you and we care about you and we don't want to see you acting this way, living this way, walking this way. Please turn, please repent. Now, if that person continues in this habitual unrepentant sin, then it is brought forward to the elders of the church. This is where the church gets involved. This is where the elders would then meet with that person and the elders of the church would then decide a pathway back to health. We might um, say, you know what, you, you need to take a step back from your leadership roles. We, we might encourage that person to uh, take a step back from their volunteering positions at the church. We might encourage that person to receive pastoral counsel, professional counsel. We might um, prescribe some type of uh, resources, books, material that they could read that would help shape them back, form them back in the gospel. We, we, we might do something like that. We might meet with them and prescribe some type of pathway forward. Now, listen. If that person continues in habitual, unrepentant sin, even after they have met with the elders, listen to me very carefully, we then remove them from membership. Now, you might say, that sounds very mean. That sounds very harsh. Let's go Matthew 18. Listen to the words of Jesus as he walks us through church discipline. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, just as we just described. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. This is the part where it then comes to the leadership of the church. It comes to the elders of the church and the elders of the church then get involved with this particular case. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. 
For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Again, this is the great text that people who uh, say they don't need church, don't need to go to church, this is the great text they love to use, right? Wherever two or more are gathered, there is Jesus Christ. Uh, This is a text about church discipline, okay? So let's remember the context of what Jesus is saying here. Now, when that person, Jesus says here that we treat that person who is in habitual, unrepentant sin, we treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. What, what What does he mean there? Well, he means we treat that person as outside the covenant community. Put it another way, we treat that person as we would a non-Christian. Now, are we rude to non-Christians? No. Are we mean to them? No. What do we do with non-Christians? We, we love them and we share the gospel with them, but we cannot walk in the same intimate, uh, deep relationship because they are exhibiting uh, behaviors that let us know they're not a follower of Christ. And we are. And, and so there's a discrepancy there in the relationship. And so we treat them as a Gentile tax collector. We treat them as someone who is not a Christian. We still love them. We still share the gospel with them, but there is intimacy in the relationship that is lost because of this sin. Okay, you guys still with me? All right, so this is Jesus' instruction on church discipline, okay? Now, here's my goal today. My goal today uh, is for us collectively to have a heart that says, I want to be a church, to be a part of a church that practices church discipline right? That, that's, a, that's my goal today. That's my heart. It, and and as it, sa- it even sounds silly saying it out loud that someone would actually want to be a part of this. But when you actually see that this is the most loving thing for a church to do, this is the most loving thing you can do for your other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the most loving thing they can do for you to, to see you walking in church discipline. When, when you see that the basis, when you see the foundation for this whole system, this whole thing is love, then yeah, your heart is stirred up to be a part of a church that practices church discipline. So as, as I was looking at this text today, I'm like, man, I got to preach about church discipline on Sunday. This is, but, but what if, what if we can see it for what it really is? What if our hearts then become stirred to say, gosh, th- this is a loving thing to do. This is, this is God's heart for me. God's plan for your life is for you to be disciplined and listen, One of God's primary means for you to be a disciplined disciple is the church by means of church discipline. This is God's plan for your life. This is how God seeks to love you, to serve you, is through church discipline and through the church. That is formative and corrective. So that is my goal today for us to leave here this morning saying, gosh, I'm glad to be a part of a church that practices church discipline. And if you're not a member here, that you would leave here today saying, you know what? I want to find a church. I want to be a part of a church that practices biblical church discipline. God has a design for optimal human flourishing, okay? So written into your DNA code is a desire to be a part of a loving community about God's work and a loving community will practice church discipline.
So written into your DNA code, how you're made up, there is a drive inside of you that has a desire to be a part of a community about God's work. Really, that, that's, that's actually what people desire. Whether they feel it, whether they say it, know it, that's actually what they're desiring is to be a part of a community about God's work. Okay, let me say it this way. Who in here, I'm, I'm gonna get nerdy, right? Is that okay? Who in here likes the Lord of the Rings? right? Great book. You read the books, you watched the film. As you watch that, there's something that stirs inside you and you're excited about it. Why? Because it's a community of people on a mission. Is it like they're, they're, there's dwarves, there's elves, they're, they're all different. They're made of, they've got different strengths, but they're coming together with a forward trajectory to do something, to save the realm, right? Or, or, or Star Wars. I'm, I'm still staying super nerdy. Star Wars, right? It's a group of people who are working together in the rebel alliance to defeat evil. And, and there's, amen, in Jesus' name. There's something that stirs inside of us. There's something that, that our, our hearts connect to when we see a loving community, okay? Uh, how about uh, the Goonies, right? There we, okay, now, that's, now the rest of you are coming with me. Uh, um, uh, Magnificent Seven. Oh, yeah, okay. They're about to remake that film. Uh, but, but when we see people in a loving community coming together for a common goal and a common mission, there's something that stirs inside of us. There's a loving community doing that. And that is because it is written into the very DNA code of who we are, how God has created us to be a part of a community that is the local church and to be about God's work on his mission, sharing the gospel, seeing lives changed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in order to be, here's where I'm going with this, in order to be that loving community about God's mission, there must be biblical church discipline. Amen? So again, my goal, that our hearts would well up with love for the biblical practice of church discipline. Okay? So let's get into our text today. If you're taking notes, go ahead and jot this down. The pathway to true joy is found in a loving church family and where there is love, there is discipline, okay? So if you're taking notes, jot this down. The pathway to true joy is found in a loving church family and where there is love, there is discipline. Verse six of our text today. Now we command you brothers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. As we get into this verse, there are two virtues that, that come shining through, two Christian virtues that we see right off the bat. One is submission, the other one is exclusion. Now, these two, um, what I call Christian virtues, uh, most of the time aren't seen as virtues by the world in which we live. Uh, defiance is valued over submission, um, and, and uh, inclusion is valued over exclusion. But here we see these two virtues coming, shining through. Just look at verse six again. Now we command you, right? When's the last time somebody said to you, I command you to do this? Right? That, that, that's awkward, and, and, and as, as red-blooded Americans, we don't like anybody telling us what to do. Right? You can't command me to do anything. Right? You ain't the boss of me. 
But here, the Apostle Paul is exerting his apostolic authority, meaning the position that was given to him by Jesus Christ himself. He is stepping into that role, fully into that role, and telling us what we need to do. Here's what I'm telling you to do. He says, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is speaking on behalf of Jesus. He gets to do that because he's an apostle. Uh, Jesus said, you're going to be an apostle. I'm giving you this authority. Uh, and so he is using that authority here. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that the Christian life is one of submission, Ephesians 5 and 6 walks us through this, this great view, this great picture of the Christian life to where, um, where, where men submit to other men, to where wives submit to husbands, to where children submit to parents. This is all of the Christian life that, that we are to be a submissive people. We command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is it uh, that he is commanding here? Well, uh, he is commanding them to keep away. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from. He, he is telling them that uh, there is this subset of people and you are not to connect with them. Keep away from them. Exclude them. Again, the mantra of our day is uh, anyone from any religion and any sexual orientation, we must include them. And here the text is saying, no, there, there are people that as Christians, we exclude. Now, we seek to include everyone, but we don't include everyone. We include sinners who admit they need Jesus. Now, what are they, be, what are they being instructed to keep away from? Well, any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Who, who remembers uh, what Paul means here when he says the tradition? We talked about this not last week, but week before last. The tradition. What's he mean there? The Bible. Yeah, the teachings, right. The, the apostolic teachings. That, that is the tradition. He, he's not talking about a man-made church tradition here. He is talking about the body of apostolic teaching. That is the New Testament. That is, uh, as he was there, he instructed them, taught them, uh, explained things to them. It was what he had received from Jesus, what the apostles received from Jesus, and then passed on as tradition to the New Testament church, Okay. So they're being instructed to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Now, interestingly enough, this person is called a brother. This is a brother, a church member who is walking in idleness, meaning um, they're walking in unordered laziness. They are not working a job. They are not serving the church. These young Christians here, in Thessalonica, got into their heads that at any second, Jesus was going to return. The, the coming of Christ they saw as imminent. He, he, he might show up in the next 30 seconds. He's probably going to show up tomorrow. And, and they really believed that all the way to the point where they would say, if Jesus is going to show up in the next 30 seconds, probably tomorrow, then why go to work? Why learn a trade? Why do any of that? Because Jesus will just be here tomorrow. 
So they got to this place in this position to where they had um, what, what our brother who came and, and shared with us a few weeks back, they had an overrealized eschatology, big fancy word. That's, that's a $3 word, take it home with you. Meaning they had this view of the end times that it was so near, it was, again, it's happening tomorrow, may, may possibly in the next five minutes, that why bother going to work? Why bother learning a trade? I mean, why bother earning, saving? Who needs to do any of that? Because the kingdom is gonna come and we're gonna be with Jesus. He's gonna take care of everything. So let's just sit here and wait. Let's put on white robes, go to the top of the hill and just sit around and wait. So they were being idle and they weren't serving the church. They were not working a job. And so uh, the apostle Paul has already told them, if you remember from 1 Thessalonians, that the idle people need to get to work. Stop being lazy. Stop laying around. There's stuff that needs to be done. Get to work. Go to work. He's already told them that. Apparently, the, the church elders have already talked to this group in the church and explained to them that they need to get to work and stop mooching off other people, and yet they still have refused. They are walking in habitual, unrepentant sin, and so the apostle Paul here is telling this church body to stay away from those people. Stay away from those people. Now, what exactly does he mean, keep away from? As I was thinking about this this week, he, he says, keep away from those people, okay? Um, well, Jesus said we're to treat them as a tax collector, as, as a Gentile. So, so when he says keep away, it's not the sense of we're to be rude to them. So then I thought about this. As the church is gathering together, right? Here come the, the, the lazy people, the idlers, people who aren't working a job, not providing for themselves. As a church gathers, we know in the New Testament, what does the church do when it comes together? What do you guys do uh, when you go to your community group? Break bread. Eat, eat a meal together. So there they were showing up to Deacon so-and-so's house. Here they come strolling in late to community group. They don't have any money. They didn't bring anything to community group, but they're getting second helpings and taking it to go plate. So what he is expressing here, what, what the apostle Paul is saying, at a bare minimum, Paul is saying, do not invite them over for dinner. At a bare minimum, Paul is encouraging this church not to enable their sin. And so by continuing to feed them, by continuing to, to, to be around them in that way, to continue to feed them, continue to let them show up at your house, have seconds, take, you know, take home a, a to-go plate, you know, maybe bum five bucks for a chariot ride home, whatever they were doing in the first century. You know, they, they've got that sob story. They ran out of gas and, you know, granny broke her leg and we need help. And if you would... He's saying, no, keep away from them. Don't keep feeding them. Don't keep giving them money because it is actually enabling. Where, where that would feel mean or, or hard-spirited hard spirit, hard to say, no, you can't eat any food. No, you can't come to my house. No, I'm not giving you five bucks for gas for ride home. Where that might feel mean-spirited, it's actually the most loving thing you can do for that person in the moment. So Paul is instructing them. He's commanding them in the name of the Lord Jesus to keep away from these brothers. This is tough love at its finest. Keep away from those people. Don't enable their sin. This is tough love at its finest. And here's the truth, church family. At some point, every single one of us needs this to happen to us. At some point in our lives, in our walk with the Lord, you will need someone to look you straight in the eye and say, you are making a really stupid decision. 
At some point in our walk with Jesus, we will need another member of this church body to look us right in the eye and say, what you're doing is wrong. It's hurting you and it's hurting other people. We need that church family. We need somebody to have the courage and the guts to say that to us. And so the apostle Paul is encouraging this young church body uh, to walk in this type of church love. We need to be a part of a church family who is willing to say and do the hard things for the very growth souls. Again, I want us to be excited about church discipline. I want us to see that this is a, a pathway for us to grow in the Lord. And that as we grow in the Lord, we find and experience our deepest joy. And, and so we should say, yes, church discipline. Yes, I need somebody to look me in the eye and tell me I'm making stupid decisions. While it be painful, while it be hurtful, it is a pathway for us to grow in Christ and therefore find our deepest joy. Amen? Okay. Verse seven. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So not only did he instruct them on how to work, that this is what the Christian should do, the, the Christian should be a hard worker, he should be about his daily tasks, not only did he instruct them in that way, he also demonstrated it. So there was Paul, we assume a tent maker. So all day long, what's he doing? He's making tents. He's, he's got his apron on. He's got his needles out. He's sewing fabric and cloth and putting it together, constructing tents. And then at night, what's he doing? He's sharing the gospel with them. He's teaching them uh, the, the Bible. And, and he's pouring out his, his life night and day, toil. I mean, you, you can see um, here in the tent, where, where he's, for, uh, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread, but with toil and labor. This is, this is what the apostle Paul was doing and his band of missionaries as they were there. Listen to what uh, Paul writes in Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Or Ephesians 6.7, serve wholeheartedly as you were serving the Lord, not people. This is a part of who we are as humans. We were built to build. Humans were created to create. God, the creator of the universe, worked six days building the creation, ma making the universe. In addition, as Jesus healed on the Sabbath, they, they came to Jesus and they said, you're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. And what Jesus says to them is, my father is working even until now, and I'm working. God is a God who works, builds, and creates. And so as humans, as we reflect who God is, we are made to make things. We're built to build. We're created to create. It's a part of our reflecting God is, is to work a job. And, and listen, stay-at-home moms, don't let anybody ever tell you you don't work. Right? Just, just try to say that to a stay-at-home mom and see what happens. Oh, oh, you're a stay-at-home mom? Oh, oh, so you don't work? 
<laughs> Just try to, so, so, so when we say work here, we're talking about um, the, the task that God has assigned to you. And so being a stay-at-home mom is, is, a, is a beautiful task to be assigned. But we're, we're built to build. We're created to create. And, and the Apostle Paul had communicated this to this young church, and it encouraged them to be about work and not be idle, sitting, sitting around doing nothing. So he says to them that while he was there, um, he didn't take their money. Okay, now it's going to get awkward because the pastor is about to talk about paying the pastor. So he says to them, while I was there, I didn't take any of your bread without paying for it. We know he stayed at this dude named Jason's house. Apparently he paid lodging there. He worked his own way. But it's interesting what, what he says here, nor did, I'm in verse eight, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Listen to this. It was not because we did not have the right but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. The apostle Paul says, I had the right to get paid by you. Um, he, he says in 1 Timothy 5, uh, don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. Right, I always make the joke, he's, he's saying that pastors are big dumb oxes. Um, don't, don't muzzle the ox while he treads out the grain. Uh, the laborer deserves his, his wages. He also says in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, that those who preach the gospel should make their living or get their living by the gospel. But here he makes a pastoral decision not to take their money, but to show them to imitate a Christian life that is about work, that, that is a hardworking, um, a, a good work ethic life because there were some people in the church who had a terrible work ethic. So he decided I'm not going to take their money so that I'm not a burden to them. And I'm gonna show them what it means to wake up in the morning, go to your job and work hard all day as if Jesus were my boss. And then at night, I'm gonna love and serve people. He demonstrated that type of life to them, okay? So, but as he was ministering there in Thessalonica, he refused to take money from them or eat any of their food without paying for it as to be an example to them. Look at verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, okay? This is a great command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat, this, this was a very common saying to them. Uh, it's a very common thought for us. This is a very common sense statement. If you don't want to work, you shouldn't eat, right? Can, can, you, can you imagine being at that community group meeting? There they are sitting around the table about to share a meal. Somebody grabs the basket of, of rolls and they pass it. And the leader of the community group says, oh no, not John. He didn't work today. <laughs> Awkward, Right? No, let, let the basket pass him on by. No, he, he doesn't get any spaghetti. I'm sorry, right? No, he, he but, you know, was on Facebook all day, so he doesn't get to eat at community group. Sorry, if you don't work, you don't eat. He's an idler. He's been lazy. We've already communicated this to him. We've talked to him. We've encouraged him in the Lord, but, but he didn't work, so he doesn't eat. Now, there is a difference between unemployment and laziness, so make, make the distinction here. Unemployment is where you want to work, you have the desire to work, yet there is no work for you to do. You're struggling to find a job. This is not talking about the person who is willing to work, wants to work. This is talking about the lazy idler who doesn't want to work. There is work to be done and they simply won't do it. That, that is who he is talking about here, okay? So to walk out true church discipline 
takes honesty and courage. Ultimately, it takes love for people over love for comfort and feelings. To say, if you do not work, you should not eat. And we're going to practice that. We're going to live that out in our church. Um, it, it takes honesty and courage. To walk out true church discipline, to say, look, you've been acting this way, you've been living this way, and, and it is contrary to God's word. It's harmful to you, it's harmful to others, and you need to stop. That takes honesty and it takes courage and it takes love for people over love for comfort and feelings. It is uncomfortable to be in those conversations. I've been in a lot of them and I've had people come to me and say things like this. You're doing something that's stupid and you need to stop. Those conversations are awkward. They're hard. Feelings will get hurt but it elevates a love for people over comfort and feelings. And that's exactly what was happening in this church. Verses 11 and 12, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Mm. Verse 12, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. These people were busybodies. They didn't have any work of their own to do, so they were getting involved in other people's stuff. They were gossiping, hanging out, hanging around, not really doing anything. Nothing better to do than to talk about other people. Did you hear what she said? Do you know what this family's doing? So they were not busy at work, but they were busy bodies. They were idlers. They were getting involved in other people's business where they did not need to do that. So Paul says, we command and encourage them. Okay, so he's commanding, he's telling them to do something. He's encouraging them to do two things. One, uh, stop talking so much. Two, get to work. That's what he says in verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly. This is forceful. This is uh, shut your mouth. Do their work quietly and earn their own living or eat their own bread is what this is talking about. Again, this takes incredible courage to say to people, okay, close your mouth, stop talking so much and get to work. It takes incredible honesty and incredible courage to say this type of thing, to encourage uh, these people in this way. And, and for you in the room who, who's saying, man, I know this person, I know this church member, they're walking this way and, and I might need to say something to them. I've got a family member or a friend that, that says they're a Christian and, and they're living or walking in this way that's totally contrary to them and I know I need to confront them, but I simply don't have the courage to do so. Listen, I've been there. I still get there sometimes. So let's ask this question. How, the Apostle Paul is saying, keep away from these people, confront these people, call them out on their sin. That, that's, that's what's happening here. So, I mean, I don't wanna be in that conversation, do you? I don't wanna be on the receiving end of it. I don't wanna confront somebody. I would rather just ignore it. 
Just pretend like it's not there. So how in the world do we find this type of courage to live out this type of bold Christian living? Where does that courage come from to really confront someone about their sin? If you're taking notes, jot this down. The only way to battle the desire to have the approval of people is to be reminded of my acceptance in Christ. Jesus Christ came and he lived the life we should have lived. He lived in perfect obedience to God the Father. Then he died the death we should have died in our place for our sins. That's the gospel, friends, amen? What that means then, if we place our faith on him, is that we are accepted by him, loved by him, cherished by him, that all of the works that he did while he was here, living the life that we should have lived, all of those works are then accredited to us, merited to us, so that we are seen by God the Father in his eyes, in the sight of Jesus, as holy, loving, righteous, justified, and acceptable. Amen? And so we're loved by him. We're cherished by him. And so if I'm ever gonna confront somebody, if I'm ever gonna go to somebody and, and, and have the courage to do that and, and not to, to have this great fear of losing their approval, I'm going to need to be reminded of my acceptance in Christ. I'm loved by him. I'm cherished by him. If I end up hurting this person's feelings, if they don't approve of me, if they don't love me, if they ignore me, if they end up hating me, it's okay because I'm loved by Christ. And so to walk out this type of radical Christian living to where we're holding each other accountable, calling one another out for sin, and when those people continue to walk in sin, even removing ourselves from them, if we're gonna walk out that type of radical Christian living, we must remember how accepted we are in Christ. Thirteen. Through 15, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary of doing good. If you think about this, this young church as they're loving and serving these people, as they're, they're, you know, people are coming to their house for a community group and they're doing this and they keep loving and serving these lazy people who are mooching off of them, you understand this command a little bit more. As, as Paul says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Keep loving, keep serving. I, I know these lazy people in the church, they, they're probably taking advantage of you, but, but keep doing good. You know, keep, keep loving, keep serving. Don't, don't grow weary in doing good. Listen to this. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, okay, he, he's talking about the breadth of um, everything in this letter. Uh, let me just tell you one command that, that he's already said in this letter, stand firm. He, he's encouraging him to stand firm in the Lord. This is, if anyone is not going to walk in what we're calling them to walk in, if anyone isn't, isn't going to, to really um, do their best to love and serve Jesus and chase after him, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. There, there is a school of thought that says you should never make someone feel shame, ever. That's always bad. If you say anything or do anything that would make somebody feel shame, you shouldn't do that, that's bad. Paul says no. If that shame that they feel then leads to repentance, then it's worth it. Then it's worth it. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. 
Okay, so as, as we look at that, do you see what I saw this week was two things that seemed to be competing. Look back at it. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. Have nothing, nothing to do with him. But look in verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Have nothing to do with him and warn him as a brother. How in the world did those two things work together? If we're to have nothing to do with him, nothing means nothing, right? Have nothing to do with him. But then there's this other part where we're warning him as a brother. Here's the key. Spiritual discernment. These two ideas are meant to be competing. They're meant to create tension in us to say, have nothing to do with him and treat him as a brother. So, as we move forward in a church that practices church discipline, as we have done this, as I've sat across the table from marriages that were broken by sin, as we have met with members in our church who had been walking in habitual unrepentant sin, each one takes special care. They're all individual, they're all unique, and they take spiritual discernment. So there may be cause for us to remove someone from membership, but still allow them to come to the gathering. Again, let, let's say there's a church member who is pursuing, they're, they're a single, uh, single dude, single lady, and they're just pursuing an inappropriate relationship. And we keep telling them, don't pursue this relationship. Don't, th this person is not a Christian. You should not. And, and they keep going down that path and they refuse to repent. We may remove them from membership, but still allow them to come to the gathering. Okay, that, that would be having nothing to do with them as a church member, but still treating them as a brother, allowing them to come to the gathering, hoping that the preaching of God's word would, would soon and soon penetrate their heart. Now, there may be another case where a young man in our church is pursuing inappropriate relationships with the young ladies of our church. In that instance, we would remove that person from membership and not allow them to come to the gathering. Again, that sounds very mean. It sounds very harsh, but it would be coming from a place of love that says, we love you, dear brother, but you cannot, should not do this. We hope that by removing you from our gathering, removing you from membership, you would feel shame and that shame would drive you to repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would continue to walk with him and therefore find your deepest hope and joy. So this is what Paul is commanding them to do, to have nothing to do with that brother. Now, every surgeon and every farmer understands this principle. Sometimes for there to be health, harm must take place. As the surgeon goes in to operate, he takes his scalpel and he cuts while there is a wound that is created, it is for the health. As a farmer comes in, he tills up, he tears up the soil so that he can maintain and manage that landscape. So sometimes for there to be growth, harm must be done. And that is what Paul is discussing here. Two point application, then I'm out of your hair. Number one, don't ignore or enable sin in others, but fight for their joy. 
That this is, this is what we need to commit to do together as church members, as a body of Christ. We need to say, I am committed to fight for your joy as you commit to fight for mine. Let's, let's commit, Gospel Community Church. Let's commit together. Let's say together, I am going to fight for the joy of the other members of this church as they fight for mine. Well, how do we do that? By not ignoring sin. Sin is destructive. Sin is corrosive. It hurts you. It hurts others. And so in order to fight for one another's joy, that means we have to have the courage to step up and say, hey, you're doing this and it's stupid. It's wrong. The Bible says not to do it. Again, Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression or sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Again, we're not, we're not talking about, oh, you know what they, oh, I'm gonna get them. Hey, hey, you've been doing this and you're wrong and you're, you know. No, th this is restoring one another in a spirit of gentleness. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So, don't ignore or enable sin in others, but fight for their joy. Again, Matthew 18, where does it start? It doesn't, it doesn't start with the pastors swooping in to fix everything. Matthew 18 starts with the individual church members going to that brother and saying something. Number two, pray for a heart that loves church discipline. Proverbs 15, 31 through 32. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Listen to this. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Proverbs 12, 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Friends, let our hearts stir up. Let us be filled with a desire to be involved in a church that loves people enough to practice church discipline for the name, for the sake, and the fame, and the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you are king and God of the universe. You are amazing and glorious and beautiful. You spoke and things came into being. By your very word, you are holding the entire universe together. Your word says that not a bird falls from the sky without you knowing. And so from the sun rising in the morning to its setting in the evening, from the blade of grass that withers or the, the flowers fade, when, um, when, when anything anywhere happens, you're in control. And this morning, we praise you, God. We lift up the name of Jesus Christ, the all-powerful creator of all things everywhere and the lover of those who are lowly like us. We praise you, God. We praise you this morning. Father, we thank you that you have given us the institution of the church. We thank you that you built the church, that you founded the church, that you have given us this thing to be a part of, this body, this people, this family to be a part of in, in order that we might grow in our joy. 
and grow in our love. And so Father, help our hearts and our minds to want discipline, to want to grow. God, I pray for a spirit of honesty, a spirit of humility to rise up in the people of this church. Help me, Lord, to be honest and humble. Father, I pray for courage that when we know we need to confront someone, when we know we need to say something, that we would have the courage to say it. That we would be reminded, Lord, of our acceptance in you and who we are in you because of your cross, because of your gospel. And that, Lord, all of us would grow deeper in our joy because we're being more and more conformed into the image of you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.